Welcome to the Trash Compactor. I'm Josh, and today we are discussing episode two of the Book of Boba Fett, titled The Tribes of Tatooine. The junk droids joining me in the Trash Compactor for this discussion today are John. Hello. James. Hello. And Murray. Oh, hello. So let's start with overall thoughts on episode two. And uh, John, I want to throw to you because I think this episode addressed some particular comments you made last time about the first episode. Yeah, I specifically wanted the show to be weirder and be a little bit more magical and have some of those old school elements of like um, the alien languages and the subtitles and all that. And um, they brought it. They had all the things that I basically thought was missing. And I felt like this episode should have been the first episode of the show. Like this really gripped me. And um, they took some artistic chances with it, yet it still felt like the old school trilogy. And I was just on board for all of it. James, overall thoughts? Yeah, I uh, kind of reflecting on what John said last episode, you know, I was, I was thinking like this, this is the origin story, I guess we were looking for of, of the man transformed. Like this was, this was like, you know, if I was to use comic book terminology, the first episode was like issue zero, and this was issue one, where new Boba Fett gets his like his origin. We see the trials, we see the hero going through training. We get we get, we get all of it, and then we get the the feat that defines him. It's like uh, I guess if you go this Boba Fett version two like this is his like his his Boba Fett begins <laughs> episode, you know. So and he and gets the outfit at the end. So I, I I enjoyed it. I mean I enjoyed the first one too, but this one really felt more solid than what we got in the first episode. No, yeah, that's a really good way of uh, framing it. Actually, it's like it's like his origin story for new for new Boba Fett. Um, and I know one person who who may be listening in particular who uh, will be happy that they addressed the fact that he's wearing a black robe underneath. Um, uh, Russ, if you're listening, I hope that made you happy. Murray, overall thoughts about episode two. I mean, I I liked it a lot. I'm like huge into westerns, so the fact that this leaned so heavy into westerns with the fact that there's a like a train heist, I was just like, uh, and instead of like horses, there's the speeder bikes. Like, so we'll get into that. Like, I do like that it was weird because the first episode was a little bit like everybody was just talking like we are now. Like, oh hey, I'm from a distant galaxy, but I sound exactly like you with no accent and uh. I might be from New Jersey. I'm not sure yet. So like, I like that. The only thing that I am feeling that it's missing, but it might address is we do get more of the origin story of where he's coming from and uh, like the new change, but he still was changed before this happened. Like when he was still captive, he was going to free like, the other person, like stuff that I don't think that Boba Fett would do, especially because in Mandalorian, when we see him, he's still just as ruthless as the guy that Vader himself has to be like, Hey, please don't disintegrate anyone this time. So I think there is a little bit of something missing, but uh, I mean, I loved it like a whole lot. So that was just uh, my take. No, that's interesting. That, uh, that could be true. Something I said in the previous episode is that I feel like, you know, um, this character, I think, was kind of a bit of a blank canvas, even um, with what we'd seen of him in the previous films, because a lot of the stuff people associate with Boba Fett, I think, are from the imaginations of fandom 
And the impression that he gave off, you know, sort of with a man of very few words, kind of man with no name. He was very enigmatic. And obviously he captured one of the beloved heroes. So he was a bad guy. He was framed as a bad guy, you know, but yes, I take your point, uh, James. Yeah, I feel like we're, we're kind of missing like a, a moment. Like I, I guess the first episode, we don't know how many, how much time he was in the Sarlacc pit, whether it was hours after Jedi or days, like we're kind of missing a moment where maybe he like said, if, if I get out of this, I will be a better person or something. Like we, yeah. we didn't get like his, like, mm. like making a promise or something. Cause as soon as he, pops his way out of, the, out of that, you know, Sarlacc pit, he's a changed man. I feel like we, we missed something from falling off that barge to escaping in the Sarlacc pit with his mindset. I, for me though, the, the only thing, and maybe I have the timeline messed up is though, is what we're seeing happens before he bumps into the Mandalorian, right? In right. Yes. one episode. And he is like so vicious in that episode. And it might just be, that's how he gets when he fights. And then, but you know, when he's not fighting, he wants to free other prisoners and, and all that stuff. But it just seems like the, we're getting like a super reformed Boba Fett, but the clips of that we see in the previous show that he's in, he's just as ruthless as like Josh was saying of the, how the fans kind of made him and pictured him. So that's, that's my only, um, issue well something that i want to get into i think so yes i mean first of all i think it's clear that he was in a very diminished or weakened state and sort of had to rely on the goodwill of the people who found him these tuscan raiders but i was wondering if he maybe sees the way the tuscans are treated and kind of makes a connection with how clones were treated obviously he so so i don't know if like some combination of his diminished state. He doesn't have a choice, but to sort of, he's sort of at their mercy. And the fact that he, he maybe kind of identifies with their position in the hierarchy of this world. John. Uh, To your point. Yeah, I think that's true. Like I think uh, Boba Fett has a soft spot for the downtrodden people uh, because you see, even in the Mandalorian, he's talking to other Mandalorians and they, they're just giving him so much shit for being a clone, you know? Oh, that's true. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. No, no, yeah, but but you're right. So the, he's definitely on the receiving end of some sort of racist culture. But um, yeah, I, I agree because I said this in the last episode too, and I wish I could just see like more of a transition from what we thought was bad Boba Fett to this Boba Fett. However, thinking about it now, I think one of the things that we tend to forget is that the Empire was the status quo. So if he's a bounty hunter and he's working for the Empire, he's basically like a freelance bounty hunter working for the U.S. government, you know, or whatever. So like he's just working for who's in charge. And if he's giving Vader shit or whatever, it's like, I guess that just speaks to like his ruthlessness for the job. And to like, as a guy who's like always oppressed as maybe as being a clone or whatever, I know they weren't thinking about that back in 1980, but like, uh, but it's just one of those things where it's like, I could see for argument's sake, how he always could have just been a dude doing his job compared to like an evil guy doing his job, if that makes any sense. No, totally. Murray. Yeah. To um, build on what Johnny was saying about, like his attachment to the job. I think there is something to that because um, 
you know, he makes it his business to find a way to stop this train, which is very kind of um, like dances with wolves type thing, right? Like he gets captured and then he embraces the culture. And that's very much gives the feeling of when, you know, they find all those Buffalo in dances with wolves and except this is like people, but it, you know, they try to justify it later in the episode saying like, Oh no, we thought like it was like preemptive. And so it was just like, they were attacking. We thought they were going to attack us. So we attacked them. But what I was going to say is he makes that his mission. So when he goes to that bar to get the speeder bikes, he's in that kind of bloodlust type, uh, like not like bloodlust, but maybe, um, all business and my business is to get these speeders and who is ever standing in my way is going to get the Boba Fett that you guys know, like happens. So. No, good point. And uh, that bar, by the way, was the infamous Tashi station where Luke wanted to get his power converters. And that those two was people a, aren't, were, weren't they his were friends from, from the deleted scene. Yes, yes, they were uh, Cami and Fixer from the deleted scene from Star Wars. They recreated <laughs> the set exactly, and they cast actors and clothed them that looked very similar to the actors who played yeah. the uh, the parts in the cutscene. Um, I remember the first time that I saw that scene was on um, in like 1995 or six. Uh, there was a CD-ROM called Behind the Magic. Remember, uh, remember. CD-ROMs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or I guess maybe it was 97 because there was a little featurette about how they made the digital do back for the Star Wars special edition. And they also had some cut scenes. And that was the first time that I had ever laid eyes on the the infamous uh, Biggs and Luke scene where he shows up to Tashi Station and Cammy and Fixer there. And he's like, oh, man, hey, Biggs, you're back from the Academy. And they have this long scene. And I remember at the time. I was disappointed that they didn't put that back in the special edition, not mm. understanding that that scene really um, had no business being in the movie. Uh, but anyway, yep. um, something I do want to discuss, uh, you touched upon it, Murray, with the dances with wolves analogy, but we've been kind of skirting around it. This episode uh, really dealt a lot with Tuscan culture and their rituals, their history and their experience on this planet. We learn, it turns out, they're the native people of this planet and they're not mm. a monolithic culture. There are... Mm there are many tribes and it's it's hard not to read it as the experience of of indigenous people in the real world i read a tweet from claudia amenabar i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly or not that said what was boba fett doing after the defeat of the empire fighting for indigenous sovereignty next question <laughs> and there was another tweet from pokemon nurse meg she said <laughs> <laughs> She said, as an indigenous person, this episode brought me tearing up out of happiness, and it's important to remember why. And she wrote a little note. She said, okay, wow, I did not expect this episode to make me as emotional as it has. As an indigenous person watching this show, I'm filled with so much excitement and pride to have such an amazing indigenous actor as Tamora to be a part of Star Wars. He so openly incorporates Maori culture into Boba, which is... Mm. Uh, which in a huge franchise like Star Wars is so important. But this episode, chapter two, the indigenous man helping the once thought savages who hide in the desert because of colonial threat and misunderstanding, the man who goes out of his way to show the compassion of these people, an entire episode literally for showing how multiple tribes exist and that they are a people with a vast ancestry, knowledge, and traditions, all ending with that beautiful drum number that made me start to tear up because all I could think of was of drums at the powwow and my dad playing the flute 
and dancing together. An episode showing through kindness and patience that the savage, uh, in quotes, the savage indigenous people of this planet are worthy, beautiful, and deep peoples. This episode made me cry and filled my chest with so much happiness. This really is monumental, and I just can't express how much happiness this gives me. I adore this show, and I'm only more excited for where tomorrow will take the character next. And right um, right yeah. And something you were saying, Murray, Dances with Wolves, which I think gets into a little a little bit of the white savior trope. And I know Mickey, who was supposed to be joining us, but uh, wasn't able to, he mentioned that he wanted to talk about the the use of or sort of the riff of the white savior uh, trope in this episode. But the interesting thing, though, about that is that the way that that person mentioned Boba Fett is not white. He's he's played by an indigenous actor. So, Mm -hmm. so, so that means that he's not a white savior. You're talking about that. And, uh, I, I always like moments, uh, small moments that show what a true, like true moments for characters, um, that tell you a lot about them. And I feel like it was played like a, like a comedy moment, but in the scene where they give him the lizard, he's like, Oh, a lizard. And then it crawls up his nose. Instinctively, instead of him freaking out or getting angry or whatever, he just says, I'm sorry, I think I accidentally ate it. <laughs> like, so like he's still in the midst of all this, trying to be very respectful to a culture he doesn't understand. And I think that small moment says a whole lot about Boba Fett and his take on uh, dealing with other cultures that aren't used to his own, which I thought was just a really cool that they put in there. No, absolutely. Uh, Murray. I really like that. And as soon as you started going that direction, like I pictured that scene, I was like, I knew exactly where you were going with it because it's very telling. And there's um, the, the, my original point that I was going to say is going off of the, that article that you were reading when they were talking about like the quote unquote savages and stuff like that. And it's an interesting dynamic that they, only now I'm not talking about the heist, but they only shoot at the train originally because every time the train passes, it like starts shooting at them. And so it's like, whereas we see that they are not quote unquote, like savages or anything like that. Like they're almost like pushed to come across that way because they are defending themselves. But if you're the person on the train, you're not seeing them as defending themselves. You're seeing like, oh, see, they were going to attack us, but we beat them to the punch. They don't see that everybody runs except for the few soldiers that come to to hopefully not get killed. And they're they're trying to get their uh, those banthas, right? They're trying to yeah. get them yeah. out of out of harm's way because they know it's just just like a ton of murder is coming every time this train goes to the extent that it only passes the one time. And Boba Fett, like he could like, I guess what you guys are saying, like he could see how they're treated just in that one passing of the train. And he's instantly like, I'm going (laughs) to, I'm going to stop that train. Like almost like, I don't know how, but I promise you, like I'm stopping that train. And I think that's like awesome. So what's really interesting, too, about the way the Tuscans are regarded is that this is really in dialogue with the films themselves, because in the original trilogy, Luke talks about the Sand People and how there are these raids on Uncle Owen's farm and blah, blah, blah. 
in the Phantom Menace, uh, during the pod race, they're just taking pot shots at the pod racers. I don't know if you recall that. But now it turns out they're actually defending themselves uh, because this is their planet. And these people are are colonizers, essentially. And the other interesting thing is that it really reminds me of um, the scene in Attack of the Clones when Anakin slaughters the Tuscans, which was, uh, I believe, was an intentional homage on George Lucas's part to the Searchers, that whole thing where they had kidnapped his mother and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, he talks about them, they're animals, and I slaughtered them like animals. And the movie is is riffing on the searchers but it's clear like we're meant to think that what anakin did was not a good thing it's just a sign that he's about to go down yeah he's really going bad but i think that this it sort of casts the way they are portrayed and regarded by characters we are meant to think of as heroes in a whole different light they 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 have been ignored and they have been pushed out of their own homeland james yeah i mean i was just gonna say like i think this is like you know, Star Wars is sometimes like you, you argue whether or not it's science fiction or not or science fantasy, but this is like a true science fiction moment. This is the job of science fiction is to reflect the problems and sins of our own world to us in a way that's allegorical. And so this is like the most science fiction I think Star Trek has ever been by, you know, showing us the range of Tuscan people and culture and Boba Fett as a, you know, indigenous person and changing the myths and mythologies and perceptions of it to reflect like things that we have missed or disregard or don't think enough about in our current society. So it's it's like a big moment, I think. <laughs> uh, 100%. And the more I thought about it, the more I was really kind of stunned at the significance of what this episode has done. I want to read a tweet from Elizabeth Sandifer, who I will probably be quoting on this show a lot because she's one of my favorite commentators and writers. And this is actually something that she said about the Matrix Resurrections, which is a topic for a whole other podcast, but, but I think it's appropriate for uh, for what we're talking about here. I think everyone should go see it, uh, by the way. I think it's definitely worth a watch. So she said this about The Matrix Resurrections. To offer the trolling but accurate take, the first post-Last Jedi franchise blockbuster, taking apart the iconography and asking what it had been versus what it could be, right? And I think that's what's happening here with The Book of Boba Fett, that what this is, and in my opinion, The Last Jedi as well, it's engaging with the world and the issues we're dealing with now and using familiar iconography to do it. That's how you keep Star Wars vital and alive and and relevant. And I think some fans, they either don't realize or they don't want these stories to actually engage with the real world in any meaningful sort of way. And they just would rather it regurgitate the same kinds of stories over and over again. But that's not what this is that is not what George Lucas had in mind. He was trying to say something meaningful about the real world and and use these films to do it. So I think uh, whenever something like The Last Jedi or this episode, quote unquote, subverts expectations or shows you something that you thought you knew and and kind of paints it in a new light, I think that it becomes it becomes divisive and i lie in the camp that says no that's exactly what it should it should be doing for it to be good and and worthwhile but i know that that's not a an opinion that everyone shares and that there are also multiple ways to go about it john uh well first i think 
everything is political and there's no way to avoid it. Even the choice to try not to be political is a political choice in a weird way. But I also think that a lot of the same fans that are saying that they don't want Star Wars to be political or it's too this or too that, uh, were too young to comprehend that the original trilogy were framing the empire like Nazis and all that. And like, no, I mean, you know, no, you're World right. War II I mean, wasn't it's that far away from 1977, you know? So it's just like, people forget that like back then adults were like, Oh, those are Nazis when they were watching star Wars, you know, that there, there's normal things that there were political undertones even back then, but they just weren't aware of it because they were four years old when they saw star Wars and they weren't thinking of it. And now as adults, we think about it. So, you know, just makes them feel uncomfortable, I guess. I don't know. No, yeah, I think the politics that are that underlie the original trilogy and the prequel films were sort of they were baked into the cake already. So, you know, you just sort of accept it. So the idea that anyone else would use Star Wars to I mean, I wouldn't say to make a political message, but I would say to engage with the real world in a meaningful way, which which to some people, I guess, means making something political. Well, also, but- with, uh, with the prequels, too, uh, it's all about the Clone Wars, which is a war drummed up by these politicians over what? And it's like, that was during the, you know, um, the second Iraq oh, the war. The war on terror. That, right. Yeah, the yeah. war on and terror. War. And it was happening at the same time. Yeah. So people were asking the same questions about George W. Bush. As Natalie yeah. Portman was asking about the Senate and the Clone Wars, no, people back then were like, "Yet again, they were ten years old and they were watching it. They weren't thinking about these things, you know." So, but as a college student, I was like, "This is just like today, a little bit." Yeah, <laughs> Murray. What it's it seems like is you know like um, there's that saying like if you're looking for a yellow car, you're going to find a yellow car all over the place, and that's kind of what's happening. That especially these days, even though like. Um, political stuff like you guys are saying are all in everything. Now that's all people are seeing. Like, and if it's there or not, they will see it. I remember somebody that was telling me that they didn't like the, um, where the wild things are move, uh, where the wild things are, the movie that Spike Jones did, because mm-hmm. it was like Obama propaganda. I was like, Oh, uh- what? <laughs> but like, what? <laughs> and I was just like, but it's like, that's clearly what, um, they what it was like on their mind and like what they were looking sure. for. And then we see that all with star Wars or anything that you do that is not status quo. Like if you make a person of color, a main character, everyone gets upset because apparently they just wanted all white people except for like Lando in the galaxy. Or if mm-hmm. you give uh, like, if like, you know, they only see princess Leia as, a damsel in distress. And anytime there's a female character that is not that, then it's like, Oh great. Here comes uh, the Mary Sue to come do like everything. And it's Mm -hmm. just, um, it's, it says something about this show in which the, the main character, even when he's captured at no point is he like slandering or like being like, Oh, you guys are a bunch of you know, like normally in dances with wolves and avatar and last samurai, there's always that, like they have to be not, they have to like get over their hatred, but he never seems to have that, which I think that's is a good point. kind of cool too. Mm. No, that's a very good point. Yeah. You know, I think that for some fans, they regard new Star Wars shows and, and movies as 
uh, delivery mechanisms for new lore to put on Wikipedia, right? And not uh, stories that are actually trying to say something relevant and 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 be challenging, not for the sake of it, but because that's what stories are. That's what makes them good. They they make us think about the world we live in and reflect on ourselves and our lives. And Star Wars is escapism, but it is made from and inspired by real things in our real world. James. Yeah, but you know, it yeah, but change is the only way Star Wars will survive. Through. Absolutely. Like as much as I I love I really enjoyed The Force Awakens and the next two well, we've had a lot of debates offline, Josh, about the, the ones after The Force Awakens, but... Yeah, I don't want to turn this into a, but, uh, a sequel say, trilogy discussion. <laughs> but I'll just say, like, uh, you know, that was nostalgia candy, which we said, like, some of the first episode of Boba Fett was, but that that is not going to fuel a, a, a series or saga to go forward over time if you just feed into nostalgia. Like, the MCU stuff is amazing, and they give me nostalgia candy, but they also change enough stuff and have endings and beginnings for characters that keeps me going. And the same thing has to be for anything Star Wars going now, because, you know, we, we got the nostalgia candy, candy with the, you know, with the last trilogy, and that really didn't seem to satisfy all the base. <laughs> In fact, it divided most of us. So with, with these shows and series, they, they, need to, they need to go somewhere new and different and show what Star Wars can be in a galaxy, in a galaxy far, far away, not just like this one, one family, one planet, one thing that we know the whole time. Exactly. Murray. Oh, it's like, uh, in the same sense, I'm finding that, uh, I don't know if it, this is a personal take on if like, like where my mind is at, if I'm kind of like nostalgic out, because like when I'm starting to see kind of that, like fan candy, like I'll see there's like now like twin huts. And then there's a clearly like, like a gladiator Wookiee. My first impression is like, uh, like, come on, like there's more creatures and people on this, in this galaxy. But then it's like, I have to catch myself be like, well, no, like Chewbacca wasn't the only Wookiee in the whole galaxy. Of course, you're going to run into other ones. And like Jabba the Hutt wasn't the, the one lone last, uh, last the Mohicans of uh, huts, right. you know? And so it's like, I find myself having to like uh, instantly turn off my skepticism because it will happen like right away whenever I see something that is, I feel like played for nostalgia, but then sometimes I'm like, Oh, I'm just projecting my own annoyance onto the stuff. Yeah. Well, also well, like you said, uh, those two examples in particular, I mean, first of all, I believe uh, both the hut twins and that particular Wookiee assassin, I believe are established expanded universe. Yes. Uh, yeah. uh, characters. Yeah. So there's that, but then, I mean, again, I mean, like you say, like there's a kind of a verisimilitude here where, yeah, Jabba had relatives and they would show up when he died. Right. And that there would be another Wookiee who who looks nothing like Chewbacca. Like he looks like a grizzled old scary fucker, you know, he like, looks he, like he's going to be um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He um, he, I believe, is a bounty hunter who, who used to work for Jabba. I think I might be getting that wrong. Uh, yeah, John, I'm excited to see that. Uh, yeah, me too. Specifically, specifically on that, when they showed up, I I loved it because it brought back a little bit of that nostalgia, I guess, of like, oh, this is the weird kooky alien shit. Uh, specifically, when that Wookiee showed up, I have a vague memory of like, because I go to geek websites, and sometimes when something big pops up in a Star Wars comic, they'll just like have a little report on it, like this happened, and I recognize that guy from the internet, but I don't know where he was from. And I thought that was a good way 
to introduce a known, I guess, comic character without making a big deal out of it. And I think, yeah, uh, it's Phil, like those who Phil know may- will know. Yeah, he did not like. Oh fuck, that's that's like Martin the Wookiee, who's like this badass <laughs> bounty hunter. They were just like, right. he's just there, and he's like, they don't say anything to him. He just shows up, and on top of that, I thought it worked on the filmmaking perspective because he was like the biggest, most intimidating Wookiee I've ever seen. You know, like when he yeah. came on, it's like it's like, yo, this guy looks like a scary nine foot werewolf, and like, yeah. and I was like, this guy is going to be a menace to fight later on. I don't care if he's in the comic book or not. That's a he really will cool rip- way to show him. I was going like to say, he's, yeah, yeah. he he will rip your arms out of your sockets yep. <laughs> and then reattach them just to rip yeah. them off again. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, this, rip your arms off if you beat him yeah. in the chest. Yeah, yeah. That's a cool uh, way to go about it. You know, uh, James. Yeah, no, I was just going to add on the uh, the characters. If um, the Marvel like Star Wars comics, the like the first run, yeah. the, in, after a New Hope, he's he's in there, and they have like this journal of Obi Wan that Luke's reading, and and he and Obi Wan tussled because he tried to, I think, kidnap Uncle Owen, that Wookiee, and him and Obi Wan had to, had a fight over it. So, and he also appears in the Doctor Aphra series and the Darth Vader series as a bounty hunter. So, okay, it's, well, then, I think those comics are canon, so they're really good stories. They are. They are. No, yeah, the Vader, the Vader uh, Marvel series I read and I loved it. And I read some of the Dr. Afro stuff, but I um, I kind of dropped it. But I should I should get into it because I keep hearing amazing things about it. Well, that's interesting. Maybe that character that uh, Wookiee will show up in the Obi-Wan series. That'd be cool to see you and oh, McGregor cool. fighting a huge, hulking, <laughs> yeah. scary huge. Wookiee. I mean, that'd, I mean, that'd yeah. be cool. I got some solo vibes from the train heist in a good way. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. want to come out and say I really like Solo a lot. Like I'm not one of those who doesn't like Solo. And that actually made me think, now here's some speculation. So if you don't want to be spoiled, I mean, it's not a spoiler. I don't I don't know anything. But I think that the bad guy or the antagonist or whoever's trying to get Fett, I think is going to be revealed to be the Crimson Dawn crime syndicate. And I'm pretty sure, you know, we were talking last week about like, are they going to have a cameo, a fan cameo? I wouldn't be surprised if it's Kira from Solo as the the mastermind of this uh, mob war between Crimson Dawn and this crime empire that Boba Fett has inherited from Jabba the Hutt. I wouldn't be surprised if that's where this is going. Um, Yeah, I think that's basically a guarantee. I mean, like they introduced Crimson Dawn. They didn't do much with it. They had this big setup with Kira becoming the main boss and then Solo ended and then they kind of regrouped and rethought their next approach. But um, talking about the train heist, Yet again, as, as a filmmaking perspective, they did this really cool thing that I loved, and it made me laugh out loud in a good way. But when that uh, female Tusken Raider that taught Boba Fett how to fight, when she infiltrates the train, and you just see people getting pulled under, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, I thought I that was it. brilliant. I was like, that's the perfect way to get around crazy fight choreography and just show that she's a menace. And, and it's and even also, better. It's even better. It's, it's like oh, Indiana. Yeah. It's like Indiana. It's like Indiana Jones shooting the swordsman. It's even better. Exactly. Yep. And, th- and it did remind the- me. That's a good point. It reminded me of Indiana Jones, like Raiders. I'm sorry, uh, Last Crusade, when he's on a train going about his business and the as River Phoenix. And um, but yeah, I just loved it. I just thought that was like that's a perfect way to go about like showing her menace to these people and still laugh with it because it's still almost like a a fun ride to go with almost like right. the lightheartedness of star Wars, you know? Right. And, uh, and the fact, and this is like, 
I hate that this is such like a big plus because too many people are doing it now. They didn't kill that character needlessly for no reason, which it was kind of, I was nervous was going to happen because that just seems like, I mean, that's kind of star Wars has been guilty of that in the past when like, Oh, the, the best guy in all the prequels, uh, he's not even going to last past the first movie. Um, but like, so I was like super excited about that. And then what I liked about the train heist was that um, when they're questioning the fish people, like when they're like, are you going to kill us? And he's like, well, it depends. Are you, I guess, running spice for whatever crime syndicate? Like that's, I guess how he knew to tell if, if they were just some sort of weird convoy or if they were actually kind of like working for some sort of gangster or crime syndicate was if they're going to find that. Exactly. Which again, which again reminded me of solo where we actually see Kessel and the spice mine. One thing I wanted to note, I thought the whole lizard induced spiritual journey that Boba Fett went on where he had to retrieve the branch from the stick. I thought it was really cool that we learned Tatooine used to be covered in water and yeah, the oceans cool. had dried up. I thought that was a really cool thing, but I thought it was really cool seeing this ritual of how they make their gaffy sticks and it, you know, retroactively makes how he shows up in at the end of uh, season two of the Mandalorian that much cooler because now we know he's a he's a full Tuscan Raider. He went through the yeah. shit. That's where he got. He didn't steal that gaffy stick from some mm. Tuscan he tussled with. He earned it. He made it like he yeah. I mean, that's his and that's where the ropes come from. I thought that was very, very cool. So it, uh, that's more or less what I wanted to cover. Uh, does anyone else have any thoughts, anything, any any bits and bobs? James. I just wanted to go back to the bar scene. It, it made me, I didn't comment on it before, but it made me think of the opening of Terminator 2, the way he, he took care of those guys. Mm-hmm. Was, totally. And, and especially with the bikes outside. Yes. It, no, no, totally. I, I'm with, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. See, what um, that reminded yeah. me of, sorry, was the um, the introduction scene in Once Upon a Time in the West, except it takes yeah. place in the bar because mm-hmm. it had, but of course it is more Terminator and I didn't think about the speeder bikes, but just everybody sizing each other up and like i i would have not liked it in hindsight but like if he said something similar to like uh a, that referenced in once upon a time in the west like how like oh you brought like you know three too many bikes or something you know uh yeah yeah like right that. it would have ruined it like it, it would have been like a oh shit that's cool moment and then it's, it's later, too on the that, nose that would yeah that, that yeah would, that was stupid no, yeah, but I can't believe I didn't see the Once Upon a Time in the West connection. It's funny, like, you're both right. The Terminator connection and the Once Upon a Time in the West homage, that didn't occur to me until my second viewing, because the first viewing, I was just like, it's Tasha Station! It's Tasha Station! It's Tasha Station! <laughs> so so it shows you the film fan in me and the Star Wars fan in me, like, are always sort of fighting well, for dominance. And in that in that, <laughs> in that instance, the, the Star Wars nerd won. <laughs> yeah. Like, first, first instance, is always a Star Wars reaction and then becomes yeah. a film reaction. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> right, I think it's, exactly. I think it's really astute that you guys brought uh, those two movies up because that uh, I think subconsciously is a good example of what Boba Fett is as a character. You know, Charles Bronson, the ultimate fucking tough, silent <laughs> gunslinger, and then you have the Terminator. And when either of those guys show up on the scene, 
you're fucked. And so like Boba Fett is like that guy in the Star Wars universe. Like when Boba Fett walks into a room, you hear a pin drop and you're like, oh no, like why is he here? What's going to happen? And that scene still, I think on some subconscious film level is telling the audience he's still that Boba Fett that you knew him as in The Empire Strikes Back. He's still that guy. Maybe not in the way that you thought he was, but he is that guy. So, like, you know, it happened in The Mandalorian, too. Like, when he showed up, we were like, oh, shit. (laughs) You know? So. What are your guys' thoughts on if there are multiple, like, gangs and whatever, the mayor and all that stuff, that they might take, like, a um, Yojimbo, like, man with no name type thing in which he retains his power when he's kind of like outmanned by having them just like fight each other working both sides yeah Uh, Yeah. no yeah that could be it's very possible because they always go to the kurosawa films and the samurai films and the westerns so yeah which again which i think we've mentioned before i think if you're going to make new star wars that's what you got to do like you have to go not make movies that look like star wars but go to what influenced the original star wars and draw more from that making sure that you're not you're not unintentionally also porting over the racist stereotypes that (laughs) may have been present in them whatever do you mean (laughs) (laughs) i mean i've I almost feel, I also feel like just based on our, our conversation here and like Tamora, like, I mean, he's Bubba Fett, like he's, he's, he's almost Bubba Fett in my mind now. Like I still am holding on to our empire Jedi version of Boba Fett. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I feel, I feel like we need maybe, and maybe this is the future season. We need that time where he became Boba Fett, like in the original suit. Like when we saw him in the flashbacks, when he was getting the stick, I'm like, okay, that's Bubba. Like, now I can make the connection between the two like versions of this guy, because I got to see him like even briefly in the old outfit, like as Boba Fett appeared. And I feel like I need that little bit of backstory and maybe we'll never get it. And I'll just have to resolve it in my head, but I need <laughs> his evolution to becoming like the most ruthless man in the galaxy. And who sort of resigned himself to bounty hunting until he, we find him here, like saying, Nope, I'm going to help indigenous people now. This is this is my call. Well, 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 but 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 I don't know that those two things are contradictory. Like sort of like John was saying before, if you think about an indigenous person now who lives in either the US or New Zealand or anywhere in the world, they kind of don't have a choice but to and I don't want to speak for indigenous peoples. I don't want to be so presumptuous, but it makes sense to me that Boba Fett went under the oppressive heel of the empire would would have to be ruthless to survive like they killed all the clones like he's he's on his own and he's at the mercy of the empire and he he needs to he needs to to be that and i think that i don't know that what we're seeing of him necessarily contradicts anything that we've seen but i take your point though that just for that psychological continuity it's like it's like you know i still have trouble imagining Hayden Christensen under the mask of Darth Vader in the original trilogy. Like it just, I mean, there's just, you know, something that is not uh, a connection. It isn't making, hopefully that will be changed in the Obi-Wan series that is coming up. But um, at least that's easier because they seem like two distinct characters, Darth Vader and Anakin compared to Boba Fett, which is like, we never knew anything. Yeah. Very distinct. Some might even say (laughs) completely different characters. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Murray. 
and it's all, it's really only this conversation that got me thinking. And I think it was maybe Johnny that said something, uh, originally about it. It's like, I guess we're under, we have that image of Boba Fett in our mind that he's like this ruthless, you know, whatever, because of basically one line that Vader says, but we don't know the circumstances of what led to descent. He just said no disintegration this time. I think that's the line, right? So we're kind of thinking like, oh, he just disintegrates everybody and he just wants to, but it's like, we don't know. Maybe this, uh, I mean, I obviously, I think no, I hear in you. this episode, somebody mm-hmm. said how retcon's not actually a bad word as we use it. But like, of course that character had no backstory, right? At all. It was just a cool character looking guy with a, so they gave him a cool line and we kind of like filled in the rest, like very like Hemingway iceberg. Right. So that's like what we're projecting onto him, but like maybe he's not as ruthless unless unless the situation calls for it. Like if he's fighting for his life, he's not going to pull his punches. Or you know, if it was dead or alive, and the guy's giving him grief, he's just going to disintegrate him and get paid because that's all he really cares about. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the bounty was a piece of shit who was abusing <laughs> the his staff and he didn't like it. So he's like, no, yeah. man, fuck it. I'm going to kill this guy. And yeah. and and Vader was unhappy about it. But he yeah. he has his own code. And he was like, no, I'm I'm going to disintegrate this motherfucker because he I don't want his <laughs> atoms. I don't want I don't want those atoms in this particular arrangement in my galaxy. <laughs> Um, yeah, and that's all. That's all fair. I mean, it, I guess in my mind, I, I we never see like he could be working for the Empire to to pay for his ability to help other people. And, like who knows? He, he's like a good. You know, like, he's a, the superhero of, of like, the slave one is here. And like yes, they're we're saved. Like I, we don't know what he's doing outside of like when he's carbon freezing Han Solo. So um, I mean, I, I think they like obviously the Mandalorians don't like him, but if he's like. In, if he's if he's a freedom fighter as we see him now, like Mandalore was under siege this whole time. I don't know if he's spending time there helping his people or has no allegiance to his people. But they we, also we, treat him like shit in the Mandalorian. So why would he help them out? He probably has more of a. I think he has more of a family lineage to his father and his way than he does to like yeah. the, the the planet and the society. So there's, I feel. and that's got like a lot of religious aspects to it too, right? Is the um, like a self-righteousness with some of the Mandalorians and, and like looking down on somebody mm-hmm. like that's maybe of a different sect or a different belief system in the same thing. So there's that on top of like a racist vibe because he is a clone. And so, um, yeah, so maybe it is one of those things. Uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe Johnny or Josh said like, where it's like, why would I help you guys? Like, you know, we like, w- we're almost like wanting Boba Fett to be the bigger person, but he is also someone that disintegrates people. So it's like, why would he help people that are, <laughs> are treating right. him in such a way and all that. So, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the point is taken. I mean, I just, I know from like the way they ended with rebels, there are also obviously many families of Mandalorians as well. So I, yeah. I wonder if there is a lineage of his father that's still left on that like planet you bring up something um that has never really been dealt with uh definitively but do we know that Django fett was a mandalorian uh there's a chain code in the mandalorian season right two, but we so they he shows like his own personal lineage the armor and Django fett so I think oh so but, okay so I so think then, that kind of so shows he, that he was actually a Mandalorian, but he oh, just went okay. off in his own way. Yeah, you know? well, well, yeah, and he allowed himself to become uh, the template for the clone army, and right, 
literally the face of the Clone Wars. So, exactly. so, so I could see why he went his, rogue, I guess. his society would maybe not be so thrilled about that. <laughs> yeah. They like make him like an outcast. Uh... Yeah. 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 Oh, uh, one, one small thing that I, I, I noticed going back to the details of the show. Uh, when they first show Boba Fett's armor in the Mandalorian, it's all fucked up and, and uh, the paint's all chipped from the Sarlacc. And then when he gets it, he puts a brand new paint, uh, brand new coat of paint on it and look really flat and kind of boring. And uh, but I was like, oh, it's a cool detail. Like he, he like fixed it up. And now I notice in this show, he's slowly getting more scratches and uh, I noticed and, that too. And scuffs on it. And I was like, yes, like there's, <laughs> it's the little details of like, he's had the armor now for a little bit longer and he's seen some shit. He's seen some shit, And all scuffed up again, just like the way it used to be. And like, I'm I'm sure by the end of the season or next season or whatever, it's going to look even dirtier and maybe he'll change the colors again. But I'm like, I thought it was a cool detail that like he has to maintain the look, you know, like a car or something like that. I mean, I like details like that because some details take me right out of it. Like the the two henchmen, they just look like guys wearing pig faces. Like that's all they (laughs) look like, you know, they look clearly painted green and stuff like that. So sometimes I am taken out of it, but like, I like details like that show. Like, no, like we still care. Maybe these characters miss here or there, but like, we still actually care. Yeah. Well, to be fair though, well, to be fair though, that's a design they inherited from, from, from legacy. 1983. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's only so many ways I think you can do a green skindalian with a pig face, and <laughs> and you know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'll give them that one. Okay, uh, closing thoughts on episode two. I love that they're bringing the magic of Star Wars back to it uh, while still making it new. Uh, not entirely sure where the show is going to go, besides just like your standard like he's going to have troubles with certain criminal organizations, but there's plenty of potential of taking a left turn at some point. Um, yeah, I'm really, I'm, I'm much more into the show with this episode as compared to the first episode. I, the first yeah. one I was like, yeah, this is good. You know, maybe if I miss a couple episodes and then like come back to it later, I'll be fine. But now with this episode, it's like, I want to watch it every week. Yeah, I want to see sure. what happens. Yeah. James, closing thoughts. Yeah, I, I think uh, this this episode definitely gave us more direction and more backstory to why he is the way he is. Um, I'm assuming, you know, based on the time of the Tuscan Raiders and his taking over of Jabba's, pa- that, that must that must converge somehow. This I feel like this, yeah. like he just didn't ditch, just ditch the Tuscan Raiders, so they must be playing, or they have a plan, or he has a plan for them. So I'm I'm curious to see how that's all gonna lay out in this season. And Murray, closing thoughts. Um, I, I really liked it. Like, um, like John said, I was after the first episode, I was kind of treating it like say like, um, Hawkeye, no offense. I'm sure it's great, but it's like, I'm like, yeah, I'll get around to finishing it. I saw like two episodes and it's like, but it's not making me like come back to it. Whereas this actually got me excited again. I'm notoriously wrong with star Wars shows where I'm just like, eh, I'm sure it'll be okay. I'm not, and then I'm like, Oh my God, the Mandalorian was the greatest thing I've ever seen. And so, um, me being a little bit hesitant and skeptical probably means it's going to be awesome. And I, uh, <laughs> me and my wife love the Tuscan Raiders. Like it's like the number one star Wars joke we do besides saying like, where could he be is when we just go. Like, <laughs> and so, um, which, yeah, I love the fact that this show is called trash compactor because we reference that scene all the time. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, on that note, oh, uh, uh, by the way, Murray, do you know what kind of droid you want to be? I I do, and it's it's tough for me to say because maybe this is a hot take that people will hate, but like C three PO is like my least favorite character in all of Star Wars. I think he's like incredibly wow. annoying. I know. Okay, but but being a protocol droid, like I'm so jealous that of anyone that could speak multiple languages, and so the fact that he could speak like every language there is interesting like that's i would absolutely love that but um yeah i would love to not like i mean besides that he's incredibly useless and annoying but i hey that's just me guys <laughs> okay. uh hot take hashtag uh, c3po you're fine three piece no the first trash take from the trash compactor i've been waiting <laughs> i've been waiting for that but leave it to me i think we got into some some good discussions here and like you said i'm really excited to see what the next few episodes have in store for us and that's all for us this week i'm not gonna fuck this ending up like i did last week <laughs> good night everybody see you next week